Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 25 and 26, actually, two chapters today. I hope that you ate a good breakfast. No, just kidding. We're, we're not going to be looking at all of that today, but turn in your Bibles to Acts 25 and 26. Um, we'll, we'll be looking primarily at the end of chapter, well, mostly into chapter 26. Um, so right before I dismiss the children, let me just tell you that Sunday, November 30th, we start our Christmas series um, called The Canticle of Christmas. Latin word, canticle, comes from hymn or song. There are four of them in the gospel according to Luke 1 and 2. And then Christmas Eve, we will be here um, on a candlelight service, uh, 7 p.m., uh, worshiping our good God and Savior and recognizing and celebrating His birth and looking forward to His coming again um, on Christmas Eve and we looking at Philippians chapter 2, another song of Christ. And then from there, we're going to the gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah in the fall. Um, that's where we're going to be in January through the spring months, to Easter anyway. And um, so we'll just be praying as the, as the team uh, and the pastors gather and we start you know, laying that, that series out and uh, dates and stuff of that nature. And we're going to be looking at Jesus as Jesus is uh, declared in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, so that's where we're going anyway, at least till the spring. And then hopefully next year, I think we'll do the gospel according to John, which I'm very excited about. So kids, you guys can go. You need Bibles. They're in the back. I do not have all the scriptures up. Please grab a Bible. It's in the back if you don't have one. If you have one and you have not brought it, you know what I will, you know what I will assume. You have memorized it all. So Acts 25 and 26. What I want to do this morning is... Set the historical perspective of chapter 26. Just briefly, let me tell you that we are at the, going, come, coming to the end of the book. Paul is in prison, or at least under arrest. He had finished his third missionary journey at Jerusalem, where he wound up in Jerusalem. And, and there he was confronted with some false charges for some fellow Jews that says that while he was preaching the gospel, he was telling everybody to deny or to recant or to turn from the customs of Moses. This had nothing to do with the gospel, the centrality of Christ, saved by faith alone through Christ alone. And therefore, Paul said, okay, you know what? Let me prove to everyone that I am not teaching those things. I will go up to the temples do sacrifices, purify himself. He took four guys along that had a Nazarite vow, pay for their charges. And while he's in the temple, he's being confronted by more people who again are falsely accusing him, saying he brought Greeks into the temple. He defiled the temple. And a crowd gathered around him and, and mayhem broke loose. They dragged him out of the city and they began beating him. At that point, the Roman soldier stepped in, the Roman, the Roman tribune is the man in charge, stepped in and, and took Paul out of there so he wouldn't get beat to a pulp, but then he got arrested as well. The Romans arrested him. And at that point, from this moment on, Paul will remain in chains until the end of the book. Ever since Paul, and ever since that incident, Paul has not only been under arrest, but he has given several occasions, we'll see one today, where Paul is given the, the apologia, the, the defense a defense of his innocence and the proclamation of the gospel. First, it was in front of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish crowd in chapters 21 and 22. He was able to give a defense. Second, in chapter 23, Paul gives his apologia to the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. He gives his defense to the Supreme Judicial Administrative Council of the Jews. They were the Sanhedrin were the leaders of the Jewish people. Then there was a plot. They tried to kill him. 
So they took Paul in chains from Rome, excuse me, from Jerusalem, and the tribune, the man in charge in Jerusalem, had him escorted at night to Caesarea, about 100 miles, I think, north of Jerusalem. Last week, we saw that Paul stood in front of the courtroom, another courtroom, and the governor of Judea. His name was Felix. The trial keeps moving up from up this governmental ladder where these, these leaders, these, these, you want to say these, these leaders that have a smaller power, lesser power, to greater power. So first he was before the, the Sanhedrin, then he was before the governor, and now today he's before King Agrippa. So the trial keeps going up this governmental ladder as we see Paul on his way to Rome. That, that's what's happening, and that's where he's going. So turn with me to chapter 25. You know what? Turn to chapter 24. This is where we ended. Let me just, let me just briefly uh, run and jump into chapter 26. So we ended with Paul in, in front of Felix. He's the governor. He's not yet before the kings, before Felix the governor. In chapter 24, verse 24, he says, After some days, Felix came and his wife, Drusilla, remember this from last week, who was Jewish, sent for Paul, heard him speak about faith in Christ, and he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment, and Felix was alarmed. Remember, we talked a little bit about the, the lifestyle of Drusilla and Felix and their, and their lack of control, their, their lack of correct judgment. And Paul is declaring the gospel to them. Felix is a little alarmed, and he says, Go away from me, verse 25. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you again. Verse 26 of chapter 24. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So it's a bribe. I'll let you loose. Give me some money. Paul's like, I'm not giving you any money. So Paul stays in chains. Look what it says. So he sent for him often and conversed with him often. When two years had elapsed, catch that, two years. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison, okay? So as we jump into chapter 25 and 26, it's two years later, Paul's in prison. The governor Felix has been replaced by Festus, who is now the governor of Judea. In chapter 25, which we will not look at, it's kind of redundant of what we've been talking about. Let me just tell you quickly that Festus, now in charge of Judea, went to Jerusalem. And while he was in Jerusalem, the leaders of the Jewish people came to him two years after Paul's been in jail and says, listen, you got this guy, Paul. We want to lay out our case before him. In fact, bring him down to Jerusalem so we could face our accusers. Scripture says that they really wanted Paul out of Caesarea, come down to Jerusalem, because they wanted to kill him. Like, all these people want to do is kill him. You think after two years, they would, like, let it go. They're not. You're right? holding, a, holding a grudge. Two years. Some of you know what I'm talking about, okay? You got to let go of that grudge. Festus tells him, no, but you know what? You guys, you want to come to Caesarea, I'm going back to sit on my throne up there. If you want to come back up to Caesarea and try Paul, come on up. And they do. In fact, they do. Chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, Paul gives his apologia, his defense. It's not getting anywhere. Paul's like, listen, we keep doing the same thing over and over. It's been two years. I've said my, my, my testimony. I've given my, my defense over and over again. Like, it's not getting us anywhere. You know what, you know what, um, you know, it's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, right? So he goes, look at verse 12. I appeal to Caesar. Paul knows he has every right as a Roman citizen, like this ain't getting us anywhere. God has already promised that I'm going to Rome to preach the gospel. So you know what? I appeal to Caesar. Everybody keeps saying the same thing. I keep saying the same thing. Send me to Rome. 
I want to appeal to Caesar. So while Paul's in Caesarea waiting, because he appealed to Caesar, look at verse 18. Okay, well, look at verse 12. All right, Festus is like, all right, cool. You want to go? Go. To Caesar you shall go. We'll send him. So Paul's waiting in Caesarea. He appealed to Caesar. He's waiting to go to Rome. And in verse 18, we find King Agrippa on the scene with his wife Bernice. They come to Caesarea. Paul's still there. He's not yet gone to Rome. And Festus tells his king, listen, while you're here, there's a guy named Paul. Look at verse 18. And, and, and I heard his case, O king. They brought no charges. I mean, I heard the charge in his case, the evils, but there was no such thing. Verse 19. Rather, this, this argument they're having between the Jews and Paul, there were certain points of dispute about their own religion, about certain Jesus who was dead, and Paul asserts he's alive. This ain't got nothing to do with Rome. This is their religion. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Verse 22 of chapter 25. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow. You shall hear him tomorrow. Brings us to chapter 26. That's pretty good, huh? We did a whole chapter. Stayed right with me too. So what's going to happen now in chapter 26, what's going to unfold is Paul taking the opportunity once again that was given to him ultimately by God to, to declare the gospel to his listeners. This narrative really is a partial fulfillment. God told Paul back in chapter 9 of Acts when he rescued and redeemed him from sin and death, God said, you, Paul, are a chosen instrument of mine you will carry my name before the Gentiles, he's already done that, and kings, and the children of Israel. This is fulfilled that right here. This narrative is really not about Paul's defense as such, charges against him as such. This is really about Jesus and the gospel. That's the overall message I want you to see in chapters 26, that Paul's going to give a defense of his, of his innocence, but what he's doing is he's driving the ship, he, he's, he's riding the horse to the place of declaring the gospel, okay? Four different movements in our narrative. Now, we'll spend time on the first one, and the last one, number four, the fourth point, is just quick, so bear with me. The first one will be busier, because I think he's setting the, the first point. Look at Paul's personal witness. Paul is, is setting the stage and pointing to Jesus. Next, we see Paul's persuasive words. He's like, I... I you hear what I'm saying? He's trying to persuade the king. And then the king finally realizes, like, oh, he's got a purpose in everything he's saying. And then finally we'll end with Paul's powerful power released. Why and how was Paul able to stand before the most, you know, one of the most powerful people around and declare the gospel? That's where we're going to end. So number one, Paul's personal witness. This is the third time, if you've been following with us, the third time that Paul is in detail talking about how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul opens up in chapter 26, verse 1 and 2 with a, with a typical defense attorney uh, a line at the very beginning. Look at verse 2. I consider myself fortunate. He's talking to the king. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Verse 3, especially 
because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. King Agrippa II was considered an authority of Jewish affairs. He was considered an authority on Jewish scriptures and Jewish conflicts in the Roman world. Rome actually appointed him as the curator of the temple. He would actually appoint high priests. He would actually be in charge of the treasury. He was, he was an authority on, on things. Again, remember who this king was and who his family was. He was probably a young boy when his father, Herod Agrippa I, had John the Baptist's head cut off. His father was also... This king's father was also one of the key players in the trial of Jesus, Luke chapter 23. Herod saw Jesus, that's his dad. He was very glad, for he had long desire to see him. Sounds just like his son, doesn't it? His son's like, bring him out, Paul's here, talking about Jesus, bring him. His father did the same thing while he was in the trial. He said, because the king has heard about him, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. So he questioned him at Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. That's his father. You know, we, we go right past that stuff, but think about it. You know, kings are having their dinner with their family. You don't think for a moment that this young King Agrippa II, who's in our text this morning, is not sitting around listening to his father talk about John the Baptist? You don't think he's talking about Jesus and the trial? You think he doesn't know? He knows, right? We talk about that stuff, don't we, at our table, right? You know, we, don't let that go right by you. In fact, his grandfather... King Agrippa II, his grandfather, is the one who ordered all the male children to and under in Bethlehem and all the surrounding cities to be murdered so that Jesus would not grow up. Think he didn't know? He knew. Ruthless family. I mean, no question. They have ruthless background. But let me tell you, they were also well-informed. And here, Paul, Paul rightly asserts, this is, listen, talking right to his listener. He knows who he is. Paul is very aware of his background, his family background. And he's like, listen, He's adapting his message to his listeners. He's like, oh, look, you're, you're an intelligent man. You, 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 you're, you're intelligent. You've been around. You know the deal. You know the customs. You know the culture of the Jewish people. So give me a chance. Be patient with me, okay? That's how he starts off. And he begins his testimony talking about his religious, his religious background, of being a Pharisee. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. I was an upcoming star. When I spoke and I learned and I was young and I was under the feet of Gamaliel, man, they were like, yo, who's that kid? He, that, that kid is sharp right there. He's going to grow up and he's going to be somebody. That, that's what he's saying. Look at verse 5. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of the religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Verse 7, to which our 12 tribes hope to obtain, and they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, your honor, your king, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you, by the way, that's plural, by any of y'all, if you're from the south, that God raised the dead? You can see him looking around at the king and Festus and the other Jewish leaders. Why is it incredible that any of you, all of you, are surprised that God raises from the dead. Paul's declaring that his, his, he's completely committed to the biblical faith of his forefathers. You see what he says? 
Paul said it's because, it's because of his Jewish heritage, not in spite of it, that he believes what he believes, that he preaches what he preaches. In fact, he's standing on trial because of the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the same hope that they had, the 12 tribes, that means the nation of Israel, had as well. In fact, they're worshiping, constantly sacrificing toward that hope. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying that the hope of Israel finds fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that hope was realized in the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. See what he ties in, the resurrection from the dead. Now remember, when the Bible talks about hope, it is not, I do really hope that the Jets win one more game this year. I'd be happy with that. Like, we don't know if that's going to be the case. The way they're playing, it doesn't, it's doubtful. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible talks about. That's not that hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it talks about a desire for something good, but it's confident, it's expecting that it will and can happen. It will happen. That's biblical hope. We don't know what the Jets are going to do. But when Bible talks about the hope of the resurrection or the hope of Jesus' return, it's, it's a desirable. I want the Jets to win. But I'm not sure, but that the hope of the gospel is I'm sure of it. God will fulfill his promises. In fact, that hope stretches back, he says, to Moses, to Genesis concerning the resurrection. And it was so appropriate for Paul to bring that up because the resurrection of Jesus Christ points to and identifies him as the Messiah in which they had their hopes on. Notice Paul and them are not arguing about the hope. What they're arguing about is the fulfillment of that hope. Central to that hope is God gives life. Central to the resurrection is the raising of Jesus from the dead. Paul in chapter 17 goes into Thessalonica and and it says that he reasoned with them and he explained to them and he proved to them in the scripture that Christ was to suffer and rise from the dead. And then he said, listen, everything is true and this Jesus who I'm telling you, I'm proclaiming, I'm showing you, because of that, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that Israel has put their hope on. So resurrection is so important. It indicates all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. It fulfills everything that they've been hoping for. It fulfills everything that they've been looking expectantly toward. you understand? Through his resurrection, Jesus declares and vindicates that he is the eternal son of God. Paul says, look, this is nothing new. This is old promises that are now being fulfilled. And Paul's personal witness moves from his pedigree and his hope to his persecutor. Look at verse 9. I myself, I don't have it up on the screen, in your Bibles, verse 9, chapter 26, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. See what he said? And I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them, I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to a foreign city. Paul is reminding them, and he said this before, of his hatred and his opposition to the gospel. He's talking about his opposition, his hatred, his alienation, and being an enemy of God. Now, let me, for a moment, let me, let me just take a small bunny trail. Every one of you who call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ has a testimony. 
Every one of you who calls yourself a follower of Christ can be a witness toward that testimony. Okay, every one of you. Some of you may not have this dramatic experience that Paul had. I hear that when I share my testimony. I had a dramatic experience, something as of Paul. Not everybody comes to Christ that way. Some of you have been brought up and raised in Christian homes and really from a small child remember growing up in the faith. Some of you, maybe as God began to work in your heart, you don't know exactly when it happened. But one thing all of us as Christ followers, one thing all of us as Christ followers can be very sure as we share our testimony and bear witness is that no matter what, your sin, my sin, your failures and rebellion and my failures and rebellion separated me from God. It does for all of us. And if not for the sin-bearing sacrifice, wrath-absorbing sacrifice of our great God and Savior, we would all be in standing in judgment, dead in our sins, awaiting God's wrath upon us. So, particularly for those who remember being a Christian at a very young age or or didn't have this dramatic experience, do not forget that biblical truth. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I've recognized, I've awakened to the truth that my sin deserves judgment, that my, 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 my life deserves to be away from God, but thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we're saved, we are rescued because of Jesus Christ, Romans 7. So no matter where you are, acknowledge, acknowledge, acknowledge that you have to be lost before you can be saved. You were alienated before you were rescued when you're sharing your testimony. Please remember, share your testimony with others. Recognize what God has done in your life. And look at his conversion. We see his consecration, now we see the conversion on the road to Damascus, verse 12. In this connection, he says, I journeyed to Damascus. I had all the letters. I had permission from the chief priest with authority and commission of the chief priest. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Midday, notice that. Bright sun, middle of the sky, shining. And you know what? There was a greater light. A greater light. And, and I heard a voice. First, he, he knocked me to the ground, verse 14. I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul was persecuting the church, and Jesus takes it personal. Jesus takes it personal. You're persecuting me. But this is the first time in, in uh, the third account that Paul shares his, his witness, his testimony, that he mentions kicking against the goads. Now, if you're not a farm boy, I'm not. They didn't have goads in, in the city. That's why I have Google. You know, no, I have it in my commentaries too, but you can look it up. A goad is something that had a hook and a point or at least a point to it. And they would use it with sheep who were not the brightest animal in the world, but heading toward a cliff, and the shepherd would either would pro, you know, poke the sheep to get him away from, for his own good, away from the cliff, or an ox who would be plowing. And, and, and the shepherd would push the, push the ox, move on, and the ox would kick as if that helped. It didn't. It was pointless, and it would actually hurt. So he's saying, listen, Paul, you're kicking against the gospel. You're kicking against me. You're kicking against the church. You're kicking against the work of the Spirit. And it not only hurts you, it's pointless. And I think it's pointless. I think, I think the Scripture is teaching us two things. It applies to both, I think. The conscious, 
conscience and the destiny. Kicking against his conscience and against his destiny. All of us know, all of us have a sense in the quietness of our heart, when, when we're alone, when we, we put that curtain around our souls, all of us know that we are guilty of sin. And all of us, at some point, have shame in our life. And you say, no, no, not me. I, I, I don't have any guilt. I don't have any shame. Okay. What if it were possible, if we could connect something to your brain, and for the next week, everything you thought, everything you did, every motive of your heart, every deed and misdeed was played up for us one Sunday morning. Anybody in? <laughs> not me. So it applies to you. Paul was kicking against his conscience, running away from God, and persecuting when he wanted, or thought he was doing something right. He had a conscience, and he kept kicking against it, and it was pointless. But you know what else? I think he's kicking against the goals mean that he was kicking against the sovereignty and, and the providence of God. You know how I believe, know why I believe that? Galatians 1 says this, Paul talking. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. That's, that, that's what we talked about earlier. Look at me, look how good I'm doing. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, but when God the Father, when he who had set me apart before I was born. Okay, some of you guys don't like to deal with that. Deal with it. Before I was born, God set me apart, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, that I might proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he goes on to say. Look what he says, verse 16. Preaching the gospel. He's, he's converted, follower of Christ, and now he's commissioned to proclaim the gospel, to preach repentance, to forgiveness of sin. But rise, he says, verse 16, Jesus talking to him, and stand up on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, turn from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. See what that says? Here's what he's saying. Listen, when, there is a, when you are embracing Jesus, when you are believing in Jesus, when you are coming to faith, he says, in one word, it's about repentance. It's about faith and repentance in Jesus. It's about turning. That's what, that's what repentance means. He said, because Jesus has risen from the dead and able to forgive sin, the only response that is appropriate for the gospel message is to repent, turn, and trust in Jesus. That's what he's saying. Paul, when Paul came to faith in Christ and met Jesus along the way, he did a complete about-face. He did a complete 180-degree. He became a preacher. He was once a persecutor. He became a lover of people before he was a terrorist. But now he turns. Look at verse 20. He said that they also may should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance doesn't save, but there is fruit of that repentance, a life that is transformed. You can't come to Jesus, walk with Jesus, repent of your sins, and keep walking the same way. There's a change, there's a turn. Okay, that's what he's saying. It's, it's a change of the mind, it's a change of the will, it's a change of the emotion, and it results in a changed life. You're, you're walking in a different direction. You're following a different master. You're walking 
outside of your own will and you're listening to the voice of Jesus. That'll make a change. Doesn't mean it's perfect every single time, but faith, repentance and faith is one coin, two sides. It's how one comes to know Jesus Christ. Look what he says. Number one, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is risen, look what he says. It'll, it'll change your understanding. It goes from darkness to light. See, you're in darkness, now you're in light. No matter how brilliant you are, no matter how smart you are in your job, no matter how you did well in school, no matter how, no matter how much you're doing well in school right now, the Bible says, apart from Christ, we're darkened in our understanding. The Bible says that because we are separated from Christ, that the God of this age or this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they do not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Paul saw the light. Paul saw the light. And when Paul saw the light, he saw how awesome and holy God was and how wicked and sinful he was and how much he needed the grace of God. C.S. Lewis writes this. When a man is getting better, when he thinks he's getting better on his own, he understands more and more clearly the evil. Oh no, when a man is getting better, he's talking about the work of the Spirit, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still in him. When a man is getting better, when a man is being sanctified, when a man is following the Spirit of God, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still in him. But when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. End quote. Paul seen the light. He turned in his understanding. Paul, 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 if you ask Paul, Paul, before he became a Christian, did you think you understood God? Did you see his holiness? Did you, did you believe in the transcendency of God? He'd say absolutely yes. But when the understanding of the gospel came, he saw the holiness of God. He saw the brokenness of man and he saw the grace of God as he'd never seen before. Change, right? Change from understanding. Look what it says here too. Change from Satan to God. Jesus said the only way a master can, be, can free you, the only way you can be set free, he said the son makes you free. What? You will be free indeed. Paul said that God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, brought us out of darkness into the lights into the light, into the kingdom of his beloved son, where we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Charles Wesley's song, if you don't know this song, is a beautiful song. He writes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Change of master. Change of understanding, a change of master, it says. And what else does it say? There's a, there's, we go from condemnation. Look, receive forgiveness of sins. We go from condemnation to what? Pardon. Forgiveness of sins. So if you've trusted Christ and you've repented, you've turned, you embrace Christ, you have been set free in your understanding so that you can see the glory of Christ. You've been set free from being in bondage to darkness and, and sin and set free to love Jesus and worship Jesus. And look what it says. You've been forgiven of your sins. Paul goes on, verse 19. Therefore, O King, I was not disobedient to the heavenly realm. Listen, that's what Jesus told me to do. But declare first to those in Damascus. I mean, that's where I was headed. Then in Jerusalem. And then throughout Judea. He's talking about his missionary trips to the Gentiles. And I told everyone everywhere they should repent and turn to God. Performing deeds. That's the outcome. That's the the outcome of, of repentance. In keeping with repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
Paul's personal witness. And look what he does. He, he, he is a very, very smart man. Smarter than I, by for sure. Notice what Paul's doing. He starts with his own experience, and look what he does. He does, jumps right into the testimony of Scripture, verse 22. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come. That the Christ must suffer. He must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, light. He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, Moses already spoke about it. The prophets already spoke about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, if you look, O king, in the scripture, it says exactly where Jesus would be born, how he would be born, when he would be born. It talks about his virgin birth, his life, his ministry, even the manner of his death. It even speaks about him being scourged and three days rising from the dead. King, didn't you read your Bible? Psalm 22. Dogs have surrounded me. This is 800 years before Christ. Dogs have surrounded me. He's talking about the crucifixion. A band of evil men have encompassed me or encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. Remember Jesus on the cross? They went to break the other bones of the, other, of the people being crucified. And they got to Jesus. They said, I... They stuck a side right in. They stuck a spear in his side. Blood and water flow. He's dead. We don't need to break his bone. It was prophesied. He said, they divide my garments. They cast lots for my clothing. We see that in the scriptures. Exactly what happened. Psalm 16, David says that they will not leave Jesus in the grave. You will not let his soul suffer and see life. Resurrection. The, 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 everything has been testified and witnessed and proclaimed by Moses and all the prophets. This is the hope that's been for Israel for thousands of years. Jesus is nothing new. He's the fulfillment of the promise of old. That's what he's saying. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 49, I think this is what Paul's really, really getting at. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 49, 6. He says, I will make you as a light for the Gentiles. Salvation. Light is salvation. Talking about Jesus. I will make you as a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Paul's saying, listen, that's exactly what happened. Christ was going to come. Read your Bible. Now remember the audience, you have the Jewish people, you have the leaders, you have the Gentiles, you have these dignitaries, and what Paul is saying, look what it says right there, both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, listen, Jewish folks, it's not just you, it's not just you, that God comes to save both the Jewish people and their hope and their expectation of the Messiah, but he also came to save the world, all nations, all tongues, all tribes, and that was rather, I would say, that was rather provocative. He's putting the Gentiles and the Jews, all people, on the same scale, on the same way, in the same way of their salvation. They both needed Christ. Both the Jew and the Gentile came to faith the same way. So first he tries to biblically persuade them, and look at the next thing he does. I want you to catch this. Verse 24. I love this. And he was saying these things, and Festus couldn't hold himself, I guess. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you crazy. You're a mental case. I'm reading into it, but that's what he means. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Festus, you don't know what's going on. You're brand new here. You haven't been in Jerusalem. You haven't been in Judea. Like you just showed up on the scene. You really don't know. 
but, but the king knows. In fact, I'm not speaking irrationally. I'm speaking rationally. I know this is true, not because I feel it in my heart. I know this is true because the facts. He says it's not irrational. Belief is, in G- listen, family, listen. Belief in Jesus Christ does not mean come to church, leave your rational thoughts and anything about facts at the door, and just come in, blindly believe anything anyone says. That's not Christianity. Paul is talking about how he came to faith in Christ and it was about the resurrection that it's not philosophy, it's not irrationality, it's history. You catch that? It's history. Not the subjective realm, but the objective realm. The entire passage in Paul's argument is why he did not want to believe in the resurrection until Jesus showed himself. And now he's saying to King Agrippa, listen, king, you know the deal. This wasn't done public, uh, in private. You know, it wasn't done in a corner. All this done was, all that was done is so public knowledge. You know what the guards are saying about the empty tomb. You know what they're saying, the eyewitnesses are saying. King, I didn't want to deal with it either. I didn't believe in any resurrection from the dead. I didn't believe, in fact, I was trying to kill them. I, I, I'm just like you, but you know what? He did. I, I saw him. And now, King, I'm calling you to the facts. Festus, you lived here. You never lived here, but Agrippa, you know the deal. You grew up. If there's anyone in this courtroom, Your Honor, who understands what I'm saying, who knows the facts, it wasn't done in the corner, it is you, King. I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out. That's what he's saying. You can't laugh it off. You can't laugh it off. Listen, even the miracles Jesus did. I mean, just it's only 30 years, 25 years after Jesus walked the earth and was crucified. Lazarus, I'm sure, had still had family in the neighborhood. His kids and his grandkids are probably telling the story. Remember, we went to Grandpa's funeral. The next thing you know, he came home the next day. Right? I could see them sitting in Starbucks, right? Two people talking. Yo, those crazy Christians, man, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he rose from the dead, that somehow there's life in his name. And the other person's like, yeah, I know. Crazy, right? Yeah. Hey, remember when we were kids? Remember when we went to the synagogue? What was that ruler's name? Oh, Jairus. Yeah, I remember Jairus. Yeah, we were a little back then. Yeah, that's right. Remember he had a daughter? Remember she died and everybody would gather around the house? Yeah, remember Jesus took her by the hand and said, girl, young girl, arise? And she opened her eyes? Yeah, I remember. You know, she's married now. She's got a couple of kids. Yeah, yeah, I know. She lives over in, you know, Abraham Boulevard over there. Yeah, I see her from time to time. You know, it's only 25, 30 years. He's telling, listen, family, listen to how, how serious this is. He's telling the king, you know it, you know it, you know it. You talked to them, you heard the witnesses, everyone saying the same thing. Lazarus rose, the young girl rose, and Jesus Christ rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. Not resuscitated like the other people who die again, but he actually rose with a new body, a glorious body, proclaiming after his resurrection that he is the eternal one, son of God. Right? He didn't come out of the tomb with, like, you know, IVs. From being beaten. You know what I mean? Like this, oh, he just rose from the dead. Really? After what he took, even if he was not dead, and they put him in the tomb, which is not true, but even if it were so, he's not convincing anybody that he's Superman. He's not. Right? He, he had a glorious body. He was raised from the dead, seen by over 500 people. You know it, King. You know that to be true. You have to deal with it. This is not about wishful thinking, but think. Right? Now, I understand... As I was writing this out, I'm thinking this out. This, you know, Hebrews 11 says, 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I get that. And there are certain elements of trusting what you cannot see. But it's not trusting without facts that confront the mind. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ was alive. Jesus Christ was seen by hundreds. And here is a testimony to a king who didn't say, I saw his body. He died. I have nothing to say. I challenge you today. If you're not a Christian and you're not a follower and a worshiper of Jesus, the facts are here. He was dead. He is alive. He has ascended. You got to deal with it. That's what he's telling. That's what he's telling King Agrippa. And look at verse 27. He realizes it too. Look, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa's like, Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would, I would. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changes. So some people think that uh, Agrippa's like angry. How dare you try to persuade me, some commentators. Some commentators think he's laughing. <laughs> yeah, you try to persuade me. I don't think so. I, there are other commentators, as I think, that he's like saying, hey, wait a minute here. Whoa. You know, kind of like ironic, kind of like, yo, what's going on here? You know, inquisitive, not really want to say the right thing, but like, what are you trying to do to me, Paul? Are you trying to convert me to become a Christian? Paul's like, yeah, no secret. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to love Jesus. It's no secret. Hell is forever and hell is really hot. We don't want you there. We want you loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, sins forgiven. No, no, no. I'm not trying to hide it. He's like, yo, king, yeah, absolutely. In fact, everybody here, if you don't know Jesus, I'd love you all to repent of your sins, trust in Jesus. I know you're trying to kill me, but you know what? I'd rather see you forgiven. That's what he says. Like, really? You're trying, yeah, yeah. And notice the king, he dodges the question. He's like, he doesn't agree with Festus. He's out of his mind, but he's like, ah, what are you trying to do here? In fact, verse 31, he's like, yo, this guy didn't do anything wrong. I, I can't argue with this guy. I, you know what? I, no one found the body. Everyone's still talking about all the miracles. Everyone's talking about his resurrection from the dead. I, I, I got nothing. You know what? I, I got nothing. Let me give you, if I can, before we move on to our last point, we're going to wrap it up. If you're taking notes, I want to give you just a couple of things in this text um, that you could take away. Because I think what, what's happening is Paul, who was the accused, now becomes the one who is sharing his faith and accusing, almost accusing the king and saying, what are you going to do with this? And we see a couple of things that Paul is doing that I think we can walk away and say, you know what, I need to do this too. I need to be a good missionary like Paul and live on mission. Here's five things. I'll just, I'll just name them briefly. You can write them down. We can talk about them at the community group. A couple of things that Paul is doing that I think is just awesome, and I want to just point it out to you quickly. Number one, Paul knew his audience, right? The only way we can build re, uh, relationships with people around us is, and to share our faith is by loving people, by understanding them. Know their worldview, know their hopes and dreams, their fears and joys. Get to know them, talk with them, listen to them. What do they value? What do they worship? What they are, are devoted to? Find out who they are. Love them. Know your audience. Uh, be diligent. Uh, to, to undercover what their idols of their hearts are. What are they worshiping that's not giving them what they need because they need Jesus, right? So we want to know your audience. Number two, be respectful. Paul throughout this engage is like not trying to poke them in the eye with a hot poker. He, he's somewhat respectful and poised for people that try to kill him. I think sometimes we have to be careful. We have to respect people where they're at and not say things that offend them. We want to offend them. Let it be the gospel and not your stupidity, okay? Number two, respectful. Number three, find common ground. You have hope, I have hopes. 
Do you know that no matter who you talk to, whether you are a straight-laced, suit-wearing dude that sees somebody with giant earrings, piercing, you have things in common. I know you're thinking, no. Yes, you do. You have disappointments in common. You have pain, hurt, grief, joy. I can go on and on. Find common ground. Number four, share your testimony. If you're not sure, talk to a brother or sister. We'll, we'll help you so that you can say, this is what God is doing. This is what God has done in my life. Share your testimony. Number five, be a bi- bridge builder, okay? In Acts 17, Paul is speaking to uh, uh, the polytheistic multi-worship, they, they worship multi-gods, uh, a Greek environment, and he, and he says things and he goes about it differently than he does with the Jews. So, Know your audience, but then look for ways to connect. Look for ways that you can bridge and contextualize the gospel, sharing and connecting with people, talking with people, understanding people, and point them to Jesus. Tim Keller writes this, When Paul spoke to Greeks, he confronted their culture's idol of speculation and philosophy with the foolishness of the cross. And then he presented Christ's salvation as being the true wisdom. When he spoke to Jews, he confronted their culture's idol of power and accomplishment with the weakness of the cross, and then he presented the gospel as true power. See, he's building bridges. You know, years ago when Billy Graham had those tracks, Peace with God, it was during World War II, and people were, were, there was a lot of turmoil in our country, and it really resonated with them. Today, when we speak to people who have been maybe abused or kicked out of their home, or they don't have a real place to call their home. They have broken homes. The idea of, of God's love and acceptance and salvation is, you know, coming into God's family will resonate. Now, there are practices and, and, and values that we have to be careful in, in a broken world, but we have to look to build bridges and be gospel intentional so that we can love them and point them and talk to them about their hopes and dreams and how Jesus is the fulfillment of, of any hope and dreams that will last, okay? Do you understand what he's saying? Remember, Jesus Christ did not become immoral to speak to the woman at the well who was immoral. Jesus did not become immoral when the woman who was a prostitute had the the, the perfume around her neck that she used to actually invite men into her home. But he did share himself with her. Jesus told Zacchaeus, the cheater, come down your house today. He didn't become a cheater to to share with the cheater, but he did share the message with the cheater of the gospel. Only one gospel, not limited to particular culture. It's cross-cultural all eternity, but it takes different forms. We have to, folks, we have to be better at connecting with people, talking with broken people about the restoration, talking about redemption to those who are in bondage, talk about reconciliation for those who have no family. All gospel truths, different forms. You have to build bridges. You have to hear their stories. You've got to love them where they're at. People will know, and I don't want to get too sidetracked, one more point, but let me just say, people will know whether they're a project to win or a person to love. They'll know the difference. We're called to love people and declare the gospel. Whether they receive Christ or not, we keep loving them. And we have to build bridges. Look for ways to show Jesus. Okay, look for ways to show Jesus. Okay, last. Paul's power. We'll end, we'll end in a couple of minutes here. Follow me here, okay? Let me end verse 18. Go back down to verse 18. 
One thing we can say that Paul had an ability to remain focused. Paul had an ability to remain poised. Even loving those who put him in chains. Even loving sharing the gospel with those that wanted him dead and falsely accused him. How did he do that? Verse 18. Paul says that, I, that Jesus sent me to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Okay, see that? That they may receive what? Forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now notice what it says. Paul says when we believe in Christ, we receive as a gift forgiveness of sin, pardon from sin. But notice what else it says. The word receive is not only forgiveness, but what else it is? We receive a place. You see that? Forgiveness of sins and a place. Now, the word place is not, doesn't just mean a parameter or uh, an area. Some people in your translations, you might have an inheritance. The place, this word means not just a place of inheritance, but a place of belonging. A place of belonging, a home, a place where you finally are like, I'm in, I I matter. That's what he's talking about. And notice it's a gift, it's not an achievement. So the moment you become a Christian, the moment you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of all your sins, but that's not all. You have a home, a place of belonging. You've adopted, you've been accepted, you've been brought into the family of God. You are where there is love and there is belonging and there is acceptance. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory writes this. Now listen, I've got two more minutes. The sense, C.S. Lewis, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Know what he's saying? He's saying there's a longing in our hearts to like we are home, where there's a purpose, there's a fact that we matter, that we are accepted, longing in heart. He says, and surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desires. For glory means good report with God. That's the gospel. For glory means acceptance by God. That is the gospel. For glory means response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of all things. The door in which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the minute you become a Christian, you are forgiven, but the door, that door in which we are all searching, the fact that we matter, the fact that we are accepted, the fact that we are loved, the fact that we are eternally God's, that door opens with the gospel. It's the longing of every single heart. The gospel opens the door. The gospel opens the door of being home with God, eternally loved. Listen, wonderfully accepted and forever welcome and delightfully the child of God. In the gospel. And you know what? Paul knew it. Paul knew it intellectually. Paul knew it emotionally. Paul knew it spiritually. Paul knew it, you know, existentially, experientially. And therefore, you know what? It didn't matter to Paul what king he was standing before. It didn't matter whether or not they wanted him dead or alive. It didn't matter or not whether he was going to be released from prison or not. It didn't matter. Why? Because the king... The king of all eternity, the king, the Lord of lords, has accepted Paul, and he's home. He's home. He has and will belong to the ultimate king. 
It is the ultimate king's love that's upon it. It's the ultimate king's acceptance and delight in the gospel. So he doesn't care what king he's in front of. Paul's living on mission. He's bold. He's confident. He's loving because he's got a place with God as a gift through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore he receives everything he needs to stand before anyone, anywhere, no matter what the reason is, no matter what they were trying to do, to say, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Be like I am, except for these chains. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn from darkness to light. Turn from your understanding and receive the light. Turn from Satan and to God. Receive the gospel. Listen, come to Jesus. If you have not come to Jesus and you're here this morning, come to Jesus. Yes, it's an act of faith. It's an act of trusting what Christ has done for you on the cross. He died for your sins. He rose victorious over over it. He offers forgiveness of sins. He paid the penalty. He paid your debt that you owe to God because you've sinned grievously against him. It's a fact. His resurrection is a fact and proof that he can forgive you if you come to him. I've said this before. It is the receipt written across the sky. Forgiven. Accepted. And maybe you're here, you're a Christian this morning. You're a follower of Christ. Are you lovingly building bridges? Are you lovingly caring for others? Are you lovingly declaring Christ to others? Ask God for help. Lord, give me help. Let me open my lips. Let me speak to them in love. Let me hear their stories. Let me see their worldview. I don't have to do the sinful things they do, but I can certainly love people where they are so that they can hear and I can see my love for them. It gives me opportunity to tell them, come to Jesus. Turn from your sin. Come to Jesus. Put your hopes, your dreams, your passion in Jesus. That's what Paul's life was about. I pray that that's what our life is about. Come to Jesus. Father, thank you for this, this wonderful narrative of Paul's boldness, Lord. We know that he is not the hero, but you are. But we're thankful that we have the narrative, we have the story, we have this, this record of his boldness before kings, before governors, before the leaders, Lord. We know that it's because of his love for you, but first because you loved him. So, Father, we thank you and we pray as a people. Lord, if there's someone here that has not trusted you, Lord, I pray as we sing, they will come to Jesus. The facts remain. He has lived a perfect life. He died the death we should have died. He rose from the dead. He now extends forgiveness to those who call upon his name. Lord, I pray that they would understand that and that your spirit would give them life. Father, and I pray, we pray as a body that we will not remain silent. Lord, give us the power, give us the strength, give us the love, give us the message. Help us to build bridges to those around us so that we can tell them all about our great God and Savior, Jesus, for your glory and our joy.